Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. You've heard me talk about the Agora Podcast Network, of which Mid-Atlantic is a proud member at the start of each show for, I don't know, maybe about a year now. It's a network of podcasts that cumulatively have over 750,000 verifiable downloads each month, of which over 400,000 are in the US alone. If you're an advertiser, it's the ideal platform to get your message out there to hundreds of thousands of engaged listeners each month whether that is in the US, the UK, Canada or even Australia. If you have a product or a service that you would like to promote on either Mid-Atlantic or the wider Agora network, please send me an email at royfield at gmail.com. That's R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com to hear how we can help. Now on with the show. Yeah, I'm back in Berlin now. So when you said you were you wanted to do Dunkirk, I've been struggling to find anyone to watch the film with me because I don't really want to bring it up with my German. Germany. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Mid Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown. Today I'm joined by the founder of the Echo Chamber Club, Alice Thwaite in Berlin and by the Yogic Democratic Party operative Reggie Hubbard in Washington DC. Say hello everyone. Hello, hello. hello. In a week which has seen the President of America tweeting uncontrollably, we ask what exactly has happened in Trump's America in the last seven days. Now to the backlash over President Trump's ban on transgender service in the U.S. military. Take a look at these images right here. Protests breaking out across the country after the president tweeted his decision to ban transgender individuals from serving in, quote, any capacity. The policy President Trump is reversing was just announced last year by President Obama's administration. And now the future of those currently serving our country is in question. This was an abrupt move by President Trump. He promised during the campaign that he would be stronger on LGBT rights than Hillary Clinton. Our chief White House correspondent, John Carl, is here with what we know now. And John, this decision caught Congress and many in the Trump administration by surprise. George, that is exactly right. Even the president's top advisors were caught by surprise by this reversal in policy. And now neither the Pentagon nor the White House is providing any details about how the new policy will be implemented. During the president's address to the Boy Scouts late Monday, he took aim at fake news and media. Let's take a listen to some of that. The fake media will say, President Trump spoke before a small crowd of Boy Scouts today. What's your sense of the president's tone Monday night? I'm not in West Virginia. I can't tell the entire size of the crowd, but I do know most of the crowd is there attending the Jamboree, which means it's a crowd that existed before the president got there, and it will be there after he leaves. So taking credit for crowd size, whatever it is, well... That's kind of appropriating something that doesn't necessarily belong singularly to the president. 
It is a great moment, and many American presidents have taken note of Boy Scouts and the Jamboree to appear there to talk about sort of bedrock American virtues. But as a political matter, it's much more important what other cabinet secretaries heard, even in jest, about firing Tom Price, the HHS Health and Human Services Secretary, if this vote doesn't come to pass the way the president wants it. In this current climate, with his two weeks in a row of publicly chastising his attorney general and the shock waves that sent throughout the Trump camp cabinet generally, a lot of other cabinet secretaries are going to see that particular soundbite and quite possibly maybe laugh. They also might shudder a bit, too. What does he say about Donald Trump, the way he's treating his attorney general, Jeff Sessions? Over to you in Washington, D.C., Reggie Hubbard. Well, in full candor, I only started paying attention to Trump's tweets about a week and a half ago. And, uh, I mean, in terms of full attention. This man built his whole campaign around tweeting. Yeah, but, I mean, I was in Bernie Sanders' world, so I didn't pay much attention to him until I had to. Um, And the timestamps on his tweets are what get me. Like, I need, at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'd like the president to be asleep. Or, or, like, at least catching a nap or something like that. No, but, uh, Reggie's a man of action. He's constantly uh, thinking about the American people and how he can better their plight. You know, he can't sleep on the job. That's for losers. He, 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 should, he should hire you um, to be his uh, uh, replacement to Sean Spicer because that's the best. No, Scaramouche, he's a slick operator. He, I thought oh he was God. very good. I thought he was very good last week. Yeah, last week. We'll see what happens in a couple of weeks. But uh, with respect to your question on uh, Sessions, you know, I never thought I would find myself remotely sympathetic to Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions' full name is Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, which is uh, named after the uh, president of the Confederacy in the Civil War, uh, Jefferson Beauregard Davis. So as a black Southerner, I have particular aversion to anything related to the Confederacy. But to have the president of the United States uh, willfully um, badgering and attacking the sitting attorney general when, in fact, the cabinet secretary is only su- is supposed to run the Department of Justice independently um, of presidential interference um, is ridiculous. And it's the latest in a string of ridiculous actions by this administration. Uh, so, again, Jeff Sessions is not my favorite at all with respect to the Department of Justice because of his stances on uh, mandatory minimums and uh, drug policy and voter suppression and those sorts of things. But to have the president attack him is ridiculous. Alice, why exactly has Donald Trump turned on Jeff Sessions? You know, do you know what? I, uh, I'm in quite lucky position being a Brit that I can switch off from American politics from time to time. And um this whole story has just been another episode that I just I can't fathom and I, I can't really get my head around. Um, if, if you want to talk about Trump's America, though, um, I, I, so I run a newsletter, the Echo Chamber Club. We try and show different points of view. And in light of everything that Trump's been doing, his support amongst his original supporter base has, in fact, grown over the last three weeks or so. Um, so. It's, okay, it's, but, but that's two different things, right? You said it's grown, sorry. Alice, and then, Reggie, you said it's rock solid. Yeah, I, I, I believe it's rock solid, but with, with somebody who is appearing to be as unstable as he is, and I say that kind of advisably, and let's take the decision to take uh to ban transgender americans from being in in the military whatever you believe about that decision or not it came as a surprise as does everything with this presidency with this administration there was no briefing about it there were no papers circulated about the issues and the problems that the military actually had etc and i'm not i don't believe that the military have any issues but there is a way of doing this stuff isn't there and he's tearing up all governmental norms and seems to be go- trying to govern from the top of his head, so to speak. It's whatever whim comes into his mind. Now, if you're going to govern like that, I think there's scant evidence, Alice, that he's actually expanding his base. So tell me, I understand so, that if you so are... There is, so there's on, an economist, a new gov poll that was mm-hmm. published about two weeks ago that says exactly that, that amongst the original people who voted and supported Trump, He's got a higher approval rating now than before. 
So that's that's that, data that, that comes but, from the Economist. But that's a different day. thing. That could, his supporters more approve of actually what he's done, but he's not expanding. No, but that's what I said the first time. The first time I said oh, that amongst sorry. his original supporter base, his approval has grown over the last three weeks. Sorry, I misheard you. Slapped wrists. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, I, I am very careful about these things because as soon as you kind of hear something like that, it's very difficult to kind of, you, you want to misbelieve the data, but unfortunately it comes from the economist <laughs> you go. And then there's another poll as well, which came out um, and it was done by Gallup. So again, a very reputable source. And it said that 65% of those who disapprove of Trump do so because of his personalities, his personality, and a mere 16% do so because of his actual policies. And that was completely different for Obama and also completely different for Bush. So I, I, I find this interesting because I'm always about trying to find narratives that sit outside the kind of metropolitan, the liberal and the progressive norm. And this data kind of shows that there's a very different picture on the views of Trump compared to what we hear every day. So like I say, I'm not really sure about what's going on with, with Sessions, but there's an, an, <laughs> yeah, there's an interesting, there's an interesting narrative appearing in, in different groups in America um, that does only get explored by, unfortunately, Fox News, Milo Yiannopoulos, Breitbart. Um, but then there is the independent data there to back up what these um, news organizations are saying. Yeah, there was so an article. Yeah, there was an article in Time magazine that I would encourage uh, both of you all to read, or anyone who listens to read, about uh, Trump supporters in uh, Ohio. Um, and it, it lends itself to what you just said, Allison. That um, if you are sixty-seven, a sixty-seven white dislocated worker um, in the middle of America, um, you were tired of the status quo to begin with. And this guy, you know, people may not like him, but I like him because he shoots from the hip. I like him because he says what's on his mind. If that's your uh, criterion for political uh, effectiveness, then Donald Trump is your messiah. You know, like if, if you are not about policy um, or doing things the right way or certain codifications and norms of government, then Donald Trump is your dude. Um, and if those people love what he's doing. Um, full stop. So I agree with that. I've, I've seen that, unfortunately. But it directly kind of affects these kind of tweets that are coming out, exactly what you just said. It's like, from my point of view, tweeting about transgender, um, transgender people in the military is just a very weird way about going about policy. Um, well, is, I, I, is, is, is it weird if you have no legislative wins um, the repeal of Obamacare is stalled, is being problematic, etc. Yeah. You can demonstrate that you're doing something with something which um, there are only 6,000 out of uh, a working population of one point something million people in the US military. There are only 6,000 transgender people. So it pays <laughs> to identity <laughs> politics and it looks like he's doing something, doesn't it, Reggie? Yeah, um, and to that point, uh, when I was younger, when I first got involved in politics, it was in the era of uh, George Bush uh, the second uh, when I when I first got involved as an operative. And whenever they hit a a, a a rut, they would pull out the gay marriage boogeyman. You know, they would be like, "Look, we don't we don't want gays to marry, right?" You know, blah blah blah, blah. and that would be like a knee jerk reaction. I think that this is a similar. Uh, boogeyman and scarecrow for the base like to me this tweet is expressly political like you may not have any legislative victories but if you're showing leadership against like uh the scourge of transgenders in the military um the people who already love you anywhere are going to be like yeah and that's what it's about like to me it's, it's it's expressly political and uh showing that who needs legislative victories when i can at least be strong on an issue that's inconsequential in reality but to my base is very important. Do you, know, do you know what then is really interesting, Reggie? The fact that because, I mean, how many tr tweets does Trump do a day? When was the last time that a tweet that Trump did got caused this amount of trouble? I, I, I mean, I, I'm just kind of guessing here, but I'm guessing it's not for a couple of months. Trump tweets about something that is related to identity politics that we care a lot about, that he's singling out a group of marginalized people who have considerable violence um, thrown at them every day. We right. immediately jump on this tweet. It's been, I mean, I do social media monitoring to see what people are talking about. It's all over Instagram. It's all over Twitter. It's on BuzzFeed. It's on The Guardian. 
Um, it's on the front page of the UK BBC. Mm. When was the last time that happened? And again, it's for something that we prop like, you know, I, I, I can't ever yeah, say now whether it, or not something's it, going to happen or not. <laughs> because it, uh, In terms of identity politics, I think the closest equivalent in the six months of this gentleman's administration is the Muslim ban. Um, that was the first like red meat. I'm going to do this for my base was the Muslim ban and the, the travel ban restrictions. Um, everything else has been kind of like social policy or, or I'm going to fire Mr. Comey or all these other things. But tra this transgender, I think, is the most recent um, specific uh, targeting a specific group of people for political gain. Do we not have a responsibility then as people who kind of, you know, we're on this podcast to perhaps try and talk about other things and to not give him um, the platform on Twitter to come out with something so outrageous that requires so much extra um, uh, you know, it needs a lot more thought, clearly. Um, is it not our responsibility as well to kind of temper our reactions to these type of things because it's almost what he wants? But I'm not really sure how we do that anymore because we need to be seen to be standing up for the things that we believe in. We need to be seen as, as a group who cares about marginalised people in society. So it's just I, something to explore. I, I don't I, know. I think, Alice, you, you're on to something, but I think that of, as human beings who um a part of a community and i think we all kind of agree that the strength of of compassion of, of any community of any society is by how you treat people who are the most marginalized people who are the most right. disempowered so yeah. in our fiber as being progressive or liberals or left of center whatever the heck you want to say we have to stand up for people who have been victimized we have to but i think you you will definitely onto something by saying that in effect, to, to take the title of your newsletter, we are a bit of an echo chamber. We are three people who broadly, fundamentally kind of agree with each other. And one thing which I have tried to do um, with, with Mid-Atlantic is actually to get right wing voices on people who speak, uh, who don't necessarily um, agree with, with me and to and to have that kind of conversation one thing i do know though is looking at the at the mailbag um of mid atlantic is that i would pro probably say that 30 to 35% of people actually do disagree with our liberal progressive limp-wristed pinko communist view of things um yes. but but they do listen they do listen and one of the most insightful kind of conversations I had was with the gentleman who voted for Trump uh, back in November, who was a professor who uh, was from Missouri and was a very educated person. And we sat down and we had an hour long conversation and, and it really did come down to identity and to dog whistles that uh, is very similar to what you're saying, Alice, and, and also what you said about people in Ohio, Reggie, um, yeah. that he just felt like the system was biased against him. Bearing in mind, I would say, as a black man, um, you know, you, uh, him as being a white, middle-class, middle-aged man who was a professor, um, how could the system he's doing, be? Yeah, he's yeah, doing all right. He's kind of doing he's okay, doing all right? right? You're fine. But, you're good. But he felt that his cultural ethics mores beliefs were under attack that's what he believed right. whether they are or not was another question but that's what he fundamentally believed and he needed to push out against that and part of that was to vote for trump even though this guy was uh and i know he's listening to the show because he listen he listens every every time we produce one even though he he would say that you know i'm a christian i go to church and i know that trump doesn't and he said some things about women which i didn't really agree with but He's kind of on my side. Right. So, so I don't know uh, what that really where that takes us, Alice. But other than to say that in part, I agree and in part, I disagree. Uh, but we I think we need to hold the man account and people like him when they are saying that there are people in our community, in our orbit, in our world who are not as important as as others and cannot contribute because I think everybody can contribute. And I think that's the salient point. I, I, I completely, I completely agree with that. I just, um, because yeah, I, I have exactly the same opinion on this as, as you do. I just, um, I sometimes wonder to what degree does it help? So I did a newsletter about two weeks ago on Trump and the, um, 
and the email scandal. <laughs> uh, I call it the all new American email scandal. And mm-hmm. um, it was it was really interesting because I think that um, a lot of people are still kind of caught up in liberal hypocrisy um, towards different news stories. Why do some news stories attract so much attention in these well-funded news organizations like BuzzFeed, like CNN and others don't? Um, and also, why um, why is it that so much coverage is anti-Trump when it's not really based on his policy so much as just kind of anti his personality? So we tend to watch kind of late night talk show hosts and that kind of thing. And I just wonder how, as a kind of a group, we can create a better criticism of Trump. And I think, you know, this podcast is, is excellent in, in doing that. Uh, but that was kind of one of my messages that I wanted to get across in the newsletter. But I think that so far, even, you know, when I mentioned that stat about amongst his original base, um, his approval rating has gone up. There was that kind of guts reaction from a lot of different, like uh, many of my subscribers. So I have kind of different subscribers who get back to me about their different groups, about how people have interpreted various newsletters. And, and my subscribers were not happy about this one I did about Trump. And it's not something where I necessarily have the answers to it. Um, but I do think that our current criticism is still quite emotional because we do feel um, very upset about a lot of the things that Trump is doing. You know, the travel ban is one of those things. And how can we and how can we create a better defense? And now I'm based in the UK. So or well, I'm currently in Berlin, so I can't obviously do too much. But it, I'd like to be part of that conversation because uh, I feel like right now we're not really getting through um, to Trump because he's still kind of chatting to his his mates at Fox News, um, and I, I like I say I don't know what the, I don't know what the solution. I is. think you, you've done a really good job in kind of slightly segueing our, our conversation, Alice, and 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 I think it was kind of timely because I don't think that on Mid Atlantic we necessarily get into policy weeds, but we but there is a certain amount of just visceral emotional. I don't understand what the fuck is going on, excuse the French, uh, with uh, with Trump and with Brexit, etc. But we, I think we do try and disentangle the emotional, you are just weird, you are wrong, your hair looks peculiar, except you are orange. You know, I don't think we've ever really talked about those things and in pushing the Montenegrin yeah. Prime Minister. We actually haven't done that. Uh, we always start from a point of, um, policy and actually what he said. Though you are completely right on late night American uh, talk shows, people just say he is bizarre, and and it doesn't necessarily go that much fur- further than that. But I think we we do go a little bit further. I'll offer one thing, and that uh, as someone who was in the guts of this fight, um, so two weeks ago. Um, I basically was a tour producer. I, we took Bernie Sanders to West Virginia and Kentucky, uh, to one in West Virginia to place pressure on Capito to vote against whatever's happening in the healthcare bill and Kentucky, because that's the home state of Mitch McConnell. Um, we took the health healthcare fight to him saying, if you, if you pass this bill, this will happen to your people, sir. Are you sure you want to do this? Um, so as someone who's in the middle of this fight, who viscerally stands against everything philosophically that this administration stands for. Even in the critique I offered earlier, I was like, this is purely political, you know? Um, so some people are just like, this is wrong. Like, no, this is a political tweet. This is designed, and this is my dispassionate analysis. This is designed to enrol- roll up your base to cover up the fact that you have, have no legislative accomplishments. I think that's absolutely spot on. Because this makes no sense. And Trump, what Trump didn't do was he didn't speak to the Pentagon and speak to generals about this. Right. Mattis is Correct. away on holiday. He, he didn't. But for the sake of the fate of 6,000 serving U.S. military personnel, it does rile, as, as Reggie says, completely. It's a complete, not a dog whistle to people who are anti um, what they see as unchristian, un-American values. The fact that these people can even call themselves transgender. Oh, they're going to be in our toilets next. You know, how can they right. fight alongside? They're going to confuse our, our boys out there fighting. Are there men? Are there women? Et cetera, et cetera. So for the sake of upsetting 
marginalizing 6,000 people. And then the, the wider transgender community, that matters not a jot because what you are doing is doubling, trebling down to your base. And what I would say also, Atlas, is one of the reasons why we need to continue the fight and to hold a light to uh, people that hold policies and views like this is because if Trump has taught us anything is by absolutely laser focusing your message on a minority. You can so inflame them, enrage them, inspire them that yeah. they come out and vote disproportionately. Yeah, that's what the left has to do. If, if Trump has taught us anything, it's that. So and, and I think we've seen the start of that specifically in Britain. If you look at the last election, did the Labour Party uh, was the Labour Party, the majority party in the UK? No. But young people came out and voted in unprecedented figures as never before. And that is because of what happened with Brexit. And that is because of this rightward drift in terms of, of policy. And it started to have an effect um, on the right. So people um, in the right in the UK are talking about uh, tuition fees, are talking about how difficult it is for young adults in Britain to get on the housing ladder, etc, etc. So, we, we, so we, we, we've got to at least double down. Though I agree with you that we need to reach out more and to engage in a dialogue with people that uh, politically uh, don't agree with us. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with you. I totally agree with that. And that's, I think, at least in American politics, and I'll be brief um, out of respect for Alex, um, the, the horizon in the next uh, generation of American politics, to me, is that coming together. So it's, yes, I'm very independent and liberal on some things, but one of my best friends is a diehard conservative. And I talk to him frequently because I'm like, look, brother, help me understand. Like, we have like we have crumbling infrastructure, like schools are falling apart and like you and I disagree politically, but we can agree that these are issues that we need to fix. How do we fix those? I think that the body politic needs to have that. And I agree with you, Alice, that it is incumbent upon people who consider themselves high minded, liberal and progressive. Progressive is not staying in that echo chamber. I even said this at my class reunion a couple of weeks ago because people were patting themselves on the back. Like I started a chat group with everyone in my neighborhood and we all think the same. I was like, that's not citizenship. Citizenship is going outside of your comfort zone to someone who disagrees with you and finding that middle ground that brings everyone forward. No, I, and I, I, yeah, again, to completely agree with everyone, um, <laughs> I, I'd like to apologise for actually bringing it around to this subject because it's something that I no. always need to talk about. No, and, no, no, it's um, good. And, and, and the second thing is um, just to say that I did say that I do think the Mid-Atlantic show is different to the majority of other, of other media um, it's just, and, and this is also something that I keep on saying is, and as you, as you said, Reggie, individuals have really nuanced conversations about the state of politics, about where we are. If you talk to someone one-on-one -on -one. for some reason, and this is just kind of personal experience because I've been doing some experiments in this area. As soon as you have yeah. three people like us three <laughs> who mm. are, um, who agree about various different things, that nuance and detail gets entirely lost from the conversation. So instead, everyone, because we're, we're social animals, right? We like to convene on our similarities as well, as other, apart from our differences. Um, and so suddenly when you're in a community, that message of, yes, we appreciate that there are some difficulties here and the data and details don't necessarily work out in X, Y, Z, gets completely lost into this kind of very binary message of what is right and what is true and that kind of thing. So it's a very small group it takes to, to kind of do that sort of thing. Um, I don't know, again, whether or not that's a positive thing or a negative thing. Mm. Um, and I think it's also why podcasts like this work, because you have small groups of people who are talking through complex issues. Um, but it, unfortunately, um, podcasts like this, I wouldn't call this necessarily mainstream media. Um, they, they don't seem to come to the fore so much in kind of political dialogue. So I, I suppose I was just kind of criticizing these large establishments that we largely have no control over. And in the meantime, we try and do our own little thing, little mm -hmm. thing. Um, <laughs> that was quite rude to all three of us um, in, uh, in establishing a new status quo. So yeah, I would like to apologize for bringing this background to my favorite subject. Um, <laughs> it's fine. You never it's apologize fine. for advocacy. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let's just kind of, kind of wrap up on this. 
Reggie, um, what is Trump going to do next uh, regarding trying to implement this policy? Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders um, was the face of the White House yesterday on Wednesday, and she didn't really know what to say. So Trump had said this at like five o'clock in the morning via a tweet, Mm. um, hadn't really briefed her. What happens next? Um, I don't think we know. I think that, uh, you know, the health care bill is still going on in the Senate. Um, certain people being called to testify in House committees on intelligence uh, regarding the Russia investigation. Who knows what happens with this tweet? Because, you know, who knows what's going to happen next? And, and I, the interesting thing about being in and around Washington is, though Trump's administration is only six months, seven months old, um, it's just increased... Ominous isn't the word, but there's an increasing energy of like foreboding in that people are just waiting for another shoe to drop, right? So you can't you can't predict what's going to happen. I I assume that um, if things go bad with healthcare or things go bad with respect to something else, that this type of thing would be amplified or, or uh, no pun intended, trumped up. But who knows? This gentleman is very unpredictable. Um, which I think is his biggest strength, but could ultimately be his undoing. Absolutely. And on that point, let's cross over the Atlantic and let's discuss the meaning of Dunkirk. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday 15, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both. I mean, I was eight years old, interesting, the same age as the uh, Dragon King's daughter when she comes out of the sea. But um, well, what was happening to me when I was eight years old was that I was at the hands of a paedophile in, um, in a classroom for a year. And... Awesome. Yeah. Um, for me... I well, and I think the reason that I somehow managed to to win in the end is that for me it's about an economy of the three things that bring a song together. Catch up with me speaking to friends and interesting people every Friday afternoon on Friday Fifteen, which you can get, of course, from a podcatcher of your choice. Hello, I'm Lucy, and this is Walkie Talkie. I walk my dog, Basil, uh, pretty much every day in a foresty bit of London. Um, I have been doing so for about four years, and I meet people that, as a dog walker, you talk to people. Um, If your dogs get on, you tend to just, you say, which way are you going, can I come with you? and you just sort of amble along and you can end up having the most extraordinary conversations. Partly because uh, you are walking side by side and facing front, so there's no embarrassing eye contact. 
if things get a bit heavy, if someone starts talking about something that they find emotional or difficult, then you can always divert your attention onto the dogs and relieve the tension a little bit. We've seen, as a group of dog walkers, we've seen um, people get pregnant, have children. We've seen people whose dogs have become ill and died and the owner says, oh, I can never have another one and then in a couple of months time they appear with a puppy and everyone's delighted to see them and um, we've seen people's marriages break down, new romances start. It's a lovely way to start your morning. It never fails to give me something something nice to think about, something interesting to think about even if it's not nice and having a dog is a sort of a, a universality really. The people aren't all like me as I hope you'll realise over the course of the series. Leading up to the 1860 election, in walks a gentleman by the name of Abraham Lincoln, who is the Republican candidate. The Republicans to the South represent the ending of slavery. And Lincoln, despite the fact that his sentiment was always in the beginning to preserve the Union rather than to abolish slavery, becomes the lightning rod of anti-Southern sentiment. And he ends up winning the election in 1860 with no support from the South. The Guardian, Manchester, Tuesday, November 20th, 1860. Summary of news, foreign. The details respecting the presidential election furnished by the New York journalist, not complete, but they not only assure us of Mr. Lincoln's election, but show that the Republican Party has obtained far more than the requisite number of votes for his return. It is calculated that New York, Pennsylvania, the New England states, New Jersey, and the Northwestern states give him 171 electoral votes, or 19 more than the majority required for the election, the total number of electoral votes being 303. It is not improbable, too, that this majority may be further swelled by the result of the elections in the Pacific states of Oregon and California. We have no account of the manner in which the Southerners have received the intelligence of Mr. Lincoln's election. The next advices will no doubt be filled with fierce Southern declamations and protest, but it's not very likely that any Southern states will do anything mere than talk loudly about succession. Listen to the first show exclusively on Mixcloud today and subscribe to us on iTunes from Washington to Obama, 10 American Presidents, the new podcast from Royfield Brown. A curtain of darkness hangs over the coast of Britain. The dark shadow of ships flash their signals to the shore. As dawn breaks, Pathy Gazette's cameraman is on a tiny merchant ship. He is risking his life to bring you the pictures. He is on his way to Dunkirk. Every few seconds he sees other ships returning, ships of all shapes and sizes, manned by sailors and merchantmen of... Wireless operators are at their posts. Each ship is filled with the men of the BEF and of the French army in Flanders. They are on their way home. Home from the hell that is Dunkirk. Since these pictures were taken, we have all heard the full story from the Prime Minister of how the Royal Navy, using nearly a thousand ships, has brought back nearly 350,000 men. Last week saw the launch of the blockbuster movie Dunkirk from acclaimed director Christopher Nolan. Dunkirk is the story of uh, the British retreat and evacuation from Europe in 1940. And it's a story that many older British people kind of cling on to, Alice. It's a bit of a British myth. I had a bit of an interesting conversation online with Peter Hitchens, the kind of famous right of centre intellectual, who said that anybody under the age of 30, uh, Dunkirk means nothing to them. Is that true? 
as a person under the age of 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it holds true in terms of like cultural references. I mean, when I think about Dunkirk, I also think about Atonement, you know, the film and the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and about kind of all of these lives that were ripped apart and what happened in 1940 and um, that kind of thing. I think that the release of the film has caused me to, because I'm quite curious about to start reading up about what Dunkirk actually was, about um, what exactly happened in 1940, because I don't think I really appreciated how close we were to losing at that point as well. Mm. Um, there's a little way- little known fact to just throw in my his, historical um, big brain here um, after just before Dunkirk sorry just before Dunkirk with the fall of Neville Chamberlain from power there was a cabinet meeting and the the meeting was to determine should we have an armistice with the Germans because the British army is fundamentally has been defeated and so has France and that cabinet meeting was only defeated by one vote that's how close britain came to um if not surrendering having an armistice with germany so we were very close very close and so presumably when you say it's a british myth because i know that my grandfather um he was in the navy incidentally he um he holds he talks about dunkirk a lot what what aspect of it do you think is mythical about the victory or well, about you, how we you, it, 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 it was a miracle. It, it, it cannot be yeah. called a victory because we did retreat. So as and the Churchill says, you know, when everybody when there was a peal of bells and everybody was joyous, when 400,000 troops escaped, he says, you know, this isn't cause for celebration. This is not a victory. It's an evacuation. Don't confuse the two things. But he said it in a much Ooh. more eloquent way than I just have. But it's a British myth. And that's not to say that the general narrative of what we believe happened in Dunkirk didn't happen. It did happen. But in terms of, if you're a student of history, it it can be put as simply as this. You look at the way that Britain went to war in 1914, and it's very much the British Empire goes to war. Um, there were one million Indian troops under British colours in the First World War. Canadian troops are always mentioned, the Anzacs, you know, Gallipoli, it's the British Empire. You move on some uh, 26 years later to 1940, and what you have is an ignominious, ignominious retreat, and we're a small country, we're plucky little Britain against the Nazi horde, against the Hun. We go in 26 years from being an empire that bestrides Uh, a quarter of the globe to be in a small island and so the myth is that it's it's the start of this new smaller britain before we enter the eu before we say we need to uh cooperate with uh and trade and be a part of europe this kind of is the is the marker of that we go into war somewhat reluctantly because of the German attack on Poland, but all of a sudden we are small, and we're small against the mighty, the mighty German Reich, and that that small Britain starts there. We are against everybody and on our own. That's so, the British myth. So that's so that's the British myth that that was kind of like the start of a new small Britain, rather rather than. I guess I am speaking as someone who's under 30 who perhaps doesn't see the cultural re- re- relevance of Dunkirk and just looks at the fact that Harry Styles is in it um, <laughs> um, as an unfortunate fan of, of Harry Styles. <laughs> well, um, let, let's move on to you, Reggie, because I, it's, it's not by accident that this is, uh, this is a film which released in Britain last. So it was on in America for, you know, for a good two weeks beforehand and also around the world. Um, what has been the American reaction to the film? Because most Americans, I know, un- are unaware for very understandable reasons about Dunkirk and its significance to Britain. So the challenge uh, with most things uh, regarding America and World War Two <laughs> is that, uh, you know, most Americans neglect to remember that there was a whole war before Pearl Harbor. Uh and I think that this film uh, just helps remind people that, 
you know, before uh, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, there was a whole host of, uh, of atrocities that took place. And uh, with respect to what you just said, that um, Germany essentially on a blitzkrieg on the continent and uh, Britain by uh, a, a miracle and very fortuitous circumstances were, were able to evacuate and like hold down until they got reinforcements when America finally joined the war. Um, so I think it just tells a broader story that goes beyond, I mean, because if you were to ask the typical American about World War II, they'd be like, Pearl Harbor, uh, D-Day, Eisenhower, Yalta. Right? <laughs> so if they even know what Yalta is. So uh, I think, like I said, it just increases the broader narrative of just the, the scope of the war um, and just how courageous it was and how bloody it was um, in, in Europe before we got involved. I think the, 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 kind of the significant thing for me, Alice, is kind of what I said in my somewhat long rambling intro question, is that this is in effect a totem of Britishness, but it's one which is kind of been lost to the vagaries of time. So I suppose the question is, um, number one, is there a correlation between the fact that younger Brits don't really know about Dunkirk, or at least it doesn't have the visceral power that it does for people who are older than me? And I, I kind of grew up with the Dunkirk uh, myth, but also with the Bat Battle of Britain myth. I can remember as a, as a child of the late 70s and early 80s that you would go to to air shows and you'd see a Spitfire. And it was, you know, and you're sinew stiffened you know because you knew what that you knew what that plane actually meant so is it is there a correlation between this old second world war myths and mythoses uh being consigned to history and the fact that young britons are much more europhile oh uh i mean so again, i'm in i'm in berlin right so um it's very difficult to escape 20th century history whilst you were out here um yeah. and uh do you do, so and but I think there is always this aspect of moving on I mean when I was about 11 years old I went on this French trip and we went to kind of see the mass graves in France um and that that was quite hard hitting at the time because it had happened within the last 100 years and of course right now we're still supposed to be looking at um the first world war because we're still kind of 100 years on from that um but I do think that young Britons don't forget about 20th century history because, I mean, look at how many times 20th century history is brought up to talk about today's political arguments, right? I think when it comes to actual events that talk about, you know, why are we, you know, what is patriotism? What does it mean to be British? All these various things. Um, people in my peer group are drawing distinctions between our, you know, two generations above us, so our grandparents, who are very fearful of invasion um, still because of all of these things that happened in Dunkirk and the fact that we don't really fear invasion and war in that sort of sense on our own turf. Um, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, I think it's fairly unlikely that we'll be invaded. But, you know, a lot of things happened last year that a lot of people thought were unlikely. So it's kind of difficult to make predictions on that front. I, I mean, yeah, you, undeniably, the young are more Europhile um, than before. We do kind of view um, ourselves as Europeans more than, than British people. And so I'll try and speak for that group because it's very difficult to speak for that group when also you're an individual and you have your own views on it as well. Um, we do tend to travel a lot more. We do tend to see pictures of the outside world that don't relate to Britain a lot more. We watch US TV shows. We watch German TV shows. We watch all of these different types of media that come from all around the world. So I think that as a generation, we probably are more clued into um, different types of culture. We're speaking more about the atrocities that the British Empire um, committed towards other nations in a way that just didn't happen about five or six years ago. We're very conscious of the role of the genocide that we kind of did even in the 40s. Um, and it, it, it's something that's kind of part of our conversation. It's part of our lexicon, which I don't believe is the case like 10 or 15 years ago. When it comes to something like the release of Dunkirk, what might be interesting as well is just to know whether or not people view that as, I mean, my, my grandparents, 
you know, remember, had friends and aunts and uncles who, who were very much involved in that, right? For us, and what's the difference between Dunkirk and another one of Nolan's films? Um, do we kind of view it in the same way that we view Batman as like an allegory for what could happen rather than something like a historical film? Um, again, I'm not, I'm not really sure how to, to answer that question. Um, but I do think that there is, of course, like a, a generational shift in the way that we view ourselves as British people. Um, and that's a good thing, right? Because it's important to forget what happened in the past because that way you can move forward. Uh, but, but it's interesting. But, but surely you, you, you can't forget what's happened in the past. You, you, need to, um, you do need to remember it and you need to learn the lessons from it to be able I, I, to, I guess, to move forward. I guess it's getting back to that emotional aspect, right? So it's like we don't have that emotional gut, visceral reaction to something like Dunkirk in the way that previous generations might. Mm. Um, and that enables you to learn from those lessons and perhaps be a bit more objective about it because you don't see yourself as quite in the in the trenches. <laughs> uh, quite so literally, yeah. yeah I, think, um, I think it's the, the, the launch of the film is somewhat timely considering uh, the political earthquake that Britain has gone through in, in the last year. And as somebody who is a, a fervent Remainer, it's hard not to look at that film and 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 to see um, the reasons for us to, in the 1970s and 30 years afterwards, to enter the European Union um, because we see the the destruction of war and and it, and it's one of the brilliant things about that film, and I just think it's a total masterclass in terms of cinematography, is that. Three of the main male leads who are all together look very similar. So Harry Styles is there with two other guys and you're really struck by how young everybody looks. So these were these were young men fighting old men's wars. They absolutely were. And they all look the same. And and it's to symbolize the 400,000 troops. It. This is the story of all of those 400,000. There are other leads in the film. So there is Tom Hardy who plays this fighter pilot in, in his Spitfire. But even interestingly him, you literally only see his eyes for the majority of the time that he's on there. So there aren't any kind of conventional leads in kind of a Hollywood sense. And you, you look at this pivotal moment in British history because if those troops had been lost there is little and no chance that we would have continued fighting against Germany um, so it's just interesting to look at that in terms of where we are now how things could have uh, changed and how our view of our integration and being a, a, an integral part of Europe and the world could have changed as opposed to us being plucky and on our own but um, just ve- I'm just going to quickly wrap things up Reggie there's private yes. saving private Ryan. Um, there is there's platoon, mm-hmm. etc. Um, are we always going to go back for a good cinematic experience to to war and to war films? When are we going to be able to move on? Do you reckon? Very quickly. The short answer is I don't think ever. I mean, from a Hollywood perspective, there's a uh, conflict, romance, uh, s- struggle and survival. And those are themes that uh, make any good story. Um, so probably never, uh, which is, I think is fine because I think um, as a history and philosophy double major, as someone who's been brooding since he was 16 years old, um, proper reflection of the past empowers you to do amazing things in the future. Now it's time for us to move on to our takeaways of the week. Alice Thwaite, we haven't heard from you for absolutely for months on Mid-Atlantic. What has been your takeaway? I'm going to expand it for you, Alice. It doesn't have to be a takeaway of the last seven days. Um, Tell you what, what has been your takeaway of the last, I think you're probably on about seven months ago, last seven months? Uh, Definitely the value of taking time off. Uh, so I've got a, a well I had a flatmate in London and I left London about a week ago and he's opened a new champagne bar in Soho called Fizz and he hasn't really taken a day off in about three and a half months um, equally I haven't really taken I've taken days off but I haven't taken 
any more than two days off in about 15 months. You just really watch your kind of creativity ebb away. Um, and as soon as you kind of take that break, you know, you just come back and you're much more productive. So um, it's something I keep on talking about is I'm so excited about my holiday. I'm so excited about looking at emails and I'm really excited about coming back and hopefully having some fresh ideas. Um, so yeah, everyone take some time off this summer. It's important. I like that. Wise words. Reggie Hubbard, what about you, sir? Uh, Alice, first of all, uh, thank you for saying uh, take time off. As someone who was in motion literally around the globe for two years, um, this past year um, has been me doing freelance gigs here and there, but mostly doing a lot of yoga um, as therapy uh, and catharsis from two years of political and creative expenditure. So the seven months I've taken for myself has allowed me to regenerate to do bigger and better things. Um, my takeaway for the week is uh, how time can heal and cause different perspective. This time last year, I was in Isn't the Democratic... Isn't that the same thing as what Alice is saying? Yes and no, because uh, this time last year, I was in uh, the Democratic Party uh, convention con producing the concession of Bernie Sanders, uh, which was very heartbreaking and heart-wrenching. But a year later, um, our movement is still going and the Democratic Party is a bit in uh, disarray. So though a year ago we lost, um, quote-unquote, we're still carrying the standard for uh, progressive uh, ideals in the United States. So that's my takeaway for the week. My takeaway is that the cinema is, is a wonderful place and we all have big TVs in, in our homes now. So we can have a somewhat cinematic experience. And I will admit to being the type of person that can find brand new films when they get released and, and download them onto my laptop which I know is wrong, but hell, I, I, I do it along with millions of other people. But there is something about going to the cinema and watching a piece of art which has been constructed for exactly that medium. So you have um, the sound, the colour and the spectacle and being completely and utterly immersed in it in a way that you can't quite by watching Game of Thrones just on your laptop because you've done an, an illegal dodgy download. So um, it's the cinema is my takeaway of uh, of the last seven days. I've seen Spider-Man Homecoming, I've seen Wonder Woman, I've seen uh, Dunkirk, I've seen so many things this year and absolutely enjoyed being encased in the dark with a friend next to me eating popcorn and enjoying that experience. Um, this has been a, a somewhat of a, um, a different Mid-Atlantic. We've had Alice um, thrown in a, a kind of intellectual spanner into the works and we had a conversation about the echo chamber. Uh, just before we go, Alice, t tell everybody about your news list and where they can find it. Uh, go to echochamber.club and it's for anyone who thinks that they are liberal, progressive or metropolitan and would quite like to access different points of view or different narratives that kind of sit outside of the mainstream media and social media. And how can people follow you personally on Twitter? Um, it's at Alice L. Thwaite. Reggie Hubbard, how about you, sir? Instagram and Twitter are O Reggie Global, and uh, Facebook is Reginald Hubbard. And you can follow me if you want to see some badly written tweets, uh, tweets that have no spelling, no grammar, uh, you can follow me where I'm at Royfield, but R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. The show is at Mid-Atlantic Show. You can go to our website, which is midatlanticshow.com, where you can see a whole panoply of our output for the last five years. Don't forget, um, you can not just send me an email, which is at royfield at gmail.com, but you can actually send us a voicemail if you agree or disagree with anything while done on the show by simply going on to midatlanticshow.com and over on the right hand side there's a grey tab go hit that and you can record us a message and we'll include them on a further show we see you all again in a few weeks time
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.